Andrew Womack Ministries presents part 7 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. This is Life for Today, tape number 114, and we begin this teaching on page 1121 of our printed materials. Actually, we were in the middle of footnote number 5 here on Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. And of course, I've been teaching all the way through the book of Ephesians. It's been talking about grace. On my last tape, I made a point of saying that uh, you could kind of divide the book into two parts. The first part, verses chapters 1 through 3, are talking about uh, positional truths, truths that have been purchased for us and that are a reality but may not be a physical reality. They're things that every believer has in Christ. And then in the fourth through the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians, it's talking about the practical application of this and talking about how to walk out this truth. And so he starts the fourth chapter talking about the uh, gifts that are given to men, such as the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, and that the purpose of these gifts are to perfect the body so that the body can go do the work of the ministry. And I spent quite a bit of time emphasizing that. And at the end of our last tape, I was down to verse 17, and I think I made this statement on there, uh, that I spent one entire year studying Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. And so I've got a lot more material on this than I'll ever be able to cover in this tape. I'd really like to make some progress and hopefully get through the end of the fourth chapter on this tape, but at the same time, I don't want to do a discredit to these things that Paul is saying. These are some powerful truths here. On our last tape, we'd gotten into the fourth chapter, the 17th verse, and we were talking about not walking like lost people walk, and the real distinguishing characteristic here, it starts in the end of this 17th verse, and it says, don't walk in the vanity of your mind. And I'd already made the point that vanity here was referring to the transientness and the inutility. I'd kind of given a little bit of explanation about this inutility. It just literally means not utilizing what you had, and I just barely touched that. But let me say a couple of other things here concerning this that I think are really important. You know, the Lord gave us our mind, and he gave it to us so that we could use it. Now, if it's unrenewed, it can be contrary to the things of God, and you can actually stop the flow of God through your mind. But on the other hand, your mind is a beneficial thing if you begin to use it. I mean, if people would just think, their lifestyle would change. I think I mentioned this last time, you know, that the Scripture says to ponder the path of your feet so that all of your ways can be established. In other words, if you would really think about where you're going, what you're doing with your life, it would influence the way that you live. And so one of the ploys of the devil is to literally get us to where we just don't use our brain. You know, the very word amusement, it's a compound word. It's made from two words. The word a means an absolute negative, and then muse is the word for knowledge or think. And so when you're saying that you're amused, it means an absolute no use of your brain. You're just being entertained. Somebody else is doing your thinking for you. And our society has become very amused to where we, you know, when a person comes in after a hard day at work, they don't want to even go to the effort of reading a paper. You have to think. You have to use your brain to do that. Most of the time, people will just plop themselves down in front of a television set and be amused. They literally don't have to do anything. They just vegetate. We have 
words like that, you know, about you vegetate in front of the television, couch potato and stuff. And, and all of these things are descriptive of somebody that, I mean, it's not only not physical activity, but it's not mental activity. You just are having somebody else do your thinking for you. And, you know, that's become popular, but it is very detrimental to put your mind in neutral and just let somebody else control it. I really believe it's a ploy of the devil. If we would really think and use our mind, it would keep us from doing some of the stupid things that we do. You know, sin isn't smart. It's emotional. It really is. And, I mean, you could see this in the lives of people. You know, I'm not saying anything to discredit a person, but some of these media ministries that have become public about some of their sin and things that they've done, I'm not against any of these guys. I'm just using this as an example. But, you know, when you stop and think about it, Jimmy Swaggart had one of the largest ministries that has ever existed. And this guy was on more radio than any other person that had ever lived, more television. He was reaching more people with the gospel possibly than any person that has ever lived. He was impacting the world. I don't remember exactly what his income was, but it was certainly up in the millions of dollars per month. He had a Bible college. He had all of these facilities down there in Baton Rouge. I mean, if you just looked at it from a carnal standpoint, this guy had a lot to lose. And if he would have just thought about it, I mean, in the natural, if he had just used logic, it wasn't worth the risk of going out and having some type of a relationship with a prostitute. It wasn't worth risking all of these kind of things for his family, for his own personal relationship with the Lord, the guilt, the condemnation. But then, if you look at the ministry, the things that he had, I mean, it cost him dearly. He's had to sell off his Bible college. He's had to sell off some of the housing there, and they've made it into retirement. It cost him tremendously, not only personally, but in the ministry, the effect that it had on the gospel. I can guarantee you that if he would have used his brain and sat down and have thought about it, he'd have seen that sin costs more than he wanted to pay. It would take him further than he wanted to go, and it would keep him longer than he wanted to stay. It's just not worth it. See, sin isn't smart. It really isn't. And this is what this scripture is talking about. Don't be like a lost man that doesn't ponder the path of his feet, doesn't think about what he's doing. You need to do that. You know, the scripture says in Psalms chapter 46, verse 10, it says, Be still and know that I am God. And the Lord has really used that scripture in my life. And there's lots of times, like it was just, uh, I think, uh, two nights ago, then I went out about 10 o'clock at night. I've got uh, some property, 26 acres, way out in the woods, and I'm building this trail on it. It was a beautiful night, and I just went out and sat and looked at the stars for about an hour or so, listened to all of the noises, and was just still. And, you know, there's a lot of people that don't take time to do that. But every time I do that, it just refreshes me. God begins to start speaking to me. My thoughts begin to start being ordered by the Lord. You need time to where you aren't just always programming something. You know, a friend of mine, a pastor, actually had made this statement to me one time. He says that, you know, he prays and had a devotion time for an hour or two every single day, but it seems like the Lord never spoke to him during that time. When the Lord spoke to him was when he was out jogging. He said he got some of his greatest revelation, that uh, scriptures came clear to him. All kinds of things happened as he was out jogging. And he was really confused by this. And he says, why do you think that is? And, you know, because I knew him real well, I knew what his devotion was like. I mean, it was all just walking and speaking in tongues. And, I mean, he was one of these that when he prayed, he got loud. It was hitting the wall and 
shouting and screaming and going through all of his thing. And I told him, I said, that when you're jogging, it's the only time that you're listening. It's the only time God could get a word in hedgewise. And he, he bore witness with that. But you know what? Really, a lot of our religious exercise, we aren't just still. We don't just let our mind dwell on the things of God, and God begin to start speaking things to us. We don't utilize our brain. God can speak to you through thoughts. You can order your thoughts right. And this is one of the points that Paul's making here. He says, don't be like a lost man that doesn't use his brain. That's what the word inutility means. Also, the word transientness is talking about, you know, like we used to call, a long time ago, we used to call bums or hobos, transients. And what we meant by that was they didn't have a dwelling place. They didn't stay or reside anywhere. They were just flitting from place to place. They were kind of going with the flow, you know, whatever happened. And he's saying here, don't let your mind be like that. Don't let your mind just float and be controlled by others, but you control it. Fix it. Focus yourself. One of the real keys in the Christian life is that you've got to be focused to be really productive. You know, a laser is nothing but just normal light. It's the same light that we use for everything. I mean, it's it's not anything powerful in itself, but if you take that and focus it into a real fine beam, you can actually use just normal light to cut through steel. And the strength of it lies when it's all focused into one pinpoint. And that's the same thing with us. As long as Satan can keep us diffused and doing a thousand different things, he can keep you ineffective. You've got to know what God called you to do. You've got to know what God's purpose for your life is, and you've got to stay focused on that, and that is a function of your brain, of your mind. You need to dominate your thoughts and rule out some other things. You know, I get so many opportunities to do things. I get people presenting me with opportunities to go minister different places. I I get people presenting me with opportunities to start this, to do this, and, and they're good. A lot of them are good, but you know what? I constantly am having to turn down things that would be nice. It would be good to do, but it's just not consistent with what God has told me to do. I have to stay focused. Over in James chapter 3, it says, Be not many masters, for in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, he's a perfect man and able to bridle the whole body also. And so that scripture is just saying, again, the same thing. Be focused. Paul said this in Philippians chapter 3. He says, This one thing I do. Forgetting those things that are behind, I press on towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Again, he's speaking of focus. And see, that's what this word transientness means. Transient, it means they aren't ever focused on anything. They don't ever stay anything. They don't commit themselves. They don't put down roots. They don't ever establish themselves doing anything. And I tell you, again, this is descriptive of so many people. I mean... uh, Even in the natural realm, we have such a transient population. I've heard statistics on this. I don't remember exactly, but it seems like that the average American family moves every four to six years or something like that. Our mailing list, i got 75,000 people on our mailing list, and there's probably 20,000 at any given time that are probably bad addresses because people move that much. I mean, it's just amazing. It's reflected in our patterns of moving and the way we do things, but... It's more evident in the way that we think. We just don't stay focused on things. We're constantly being amused. And this is what Paul is speaking against. I tell you, I could spend weeks describing that and making further application of it, but I encourage you to get hold of some of this. I've got some teaching. I did a two, 
three-tape album. It's actually six tapes, two three-tape albums on Christian philosophy that came out of these very passages of Scripture, and it would go into a lot more detail on that. I've got some tapes on uh, harnessing your emotions that cover this and other things that could go into more detail on it. In verse 18, this is still a progression. It's not a new sentence. It's just a comma at the end of verse 17. It says, don't be like a Gentile or a lost man walking in the vanity of your mind. And then in verse 18, here's the results of walking in the vanity of your mind. It says, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. And this is another passage of Scripture that, man, I could minister for weeks on this. This is powerful what's being said. You know, the word understanding is an amazing word. And I just recently did a study on this, and I mean the word understanding is used a tremendous amount in the Bible. There's over 53 times that the word understanding is mentioned in the book of Proverbs alone. And if you were to take the entire word of God, there are just literally hundreds of examples. The book of Proverbs has some awesome things to say. It says, wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and with all of your getting, get understanding. And then the scriptures just go on and on about this. Understanding literally is talking about deep thought. You know, that's what the scripture says in Ephesians 4.18. This word that was used here, I'm not going to try and pronounce it, but it means deep thought. And it's a compound word. The first word literally denotes the channel of an act, and then the second word means the intellect. And it's talking about more than just intellectual knowledge. It's talking about the ability to use that knowledge. In other words, some people think, but they think so surface level. They don't think things through. They don't meditate on things until it becomes evident and clear to them. See, that's what understanding is talking about here. You know, there's a lot of scriptures on this. One of them that really pops out is uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 19. And this is where Jesus was teaching on the parable of the sower sowing the seed. And in that scripture... Uh, he had already given the parable that his disciples asked him for the interpretation. And as he began to interpret it, he said that the very first type of person he was describing is a person who heard the word of God but understood it not. And then Satan came immediately and stole away the word that was in their heart. That scripture links Satan's ability to come steal away the word from a person directly to your ability to understand In other words, every person who heard the word probably had comprehension of it. They probably heard the words, and in their intellect, they might have been able to repeat and tell you those things, but they didn't meditate on it. They didn't take it and embrace it to the degree that it literally began to impact their life. There was no real deep thought. There wasn't understanding. They didn't meditate on it. And the scripture says that Satan has access to those type of people to come steal away the word It was sown in their heart. Another way of saying this is they just don't apply their heart to the Word of God. And I've used this as an example many, many times. But, you know, I I sometimes watch football or baseball or something like that, and I see and hear a few little things about sports. But if you were to ask me, you know, what team played in the Super Bowl last year, I could tell you one of them because I've got an in-law that constantly reminds me about the Dallas Cowboys. But I couldn't even tell you who they played. And yet I saw part of that. And it's not because I didn't hear it. It's just because I didn't really set my heart on it. I didn't give much thought to it. It was just surface level. It's not something that I'm really interested in. 
I've got the facts up there someplace, but it's just not something I've set my heart on. I don't really have understanding of it. Well, that's an example of me not understanding something in the natural. But, you know, the sad thing is most people, when it comes to spiritual things, they don't set their heart on the things of God. And they may listen to a message, and they may be able to repeat certain things to you and say, you know, what the topic of the message was. They might be able to list the three points, but they don't set their heart to it. It doesn't sink down into their understanding. They don't get comprehension of it, make application to their life. And as a result, Satan just steals away the word from them. This is a deadly thing. If Satan can affect your understanding, then he can come and steal away the word, and the word is what's going to produce fruit in your life. It's what's going to change your life. And so if he can affect your understanding, he can affect the word. He can make you ineffective. And the way that your understanding is affected is by walking in the vanity of your mind, not utilizing your brain, not being focused on the things of God, not taking the things that God speaks to you and meditating on them until they become life-transforming. If you are not doing that, then your understanding is darkened and you are alienated from the life of God. Boy, these are strong, strong statements. You know, here's another passage of Scripture that has really ministered to me out of Psalms chapter 32, verse 9. It says, Be ye not as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose mouth must be, must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Now, you know what that Scripture is saying? It says, Don't act like an animal, a horse or a mule who have no understanding. Now, when it says that they don't have any understanding, it isn't saying that they're stupid. You know, I've had horses a large part of my life, and horses are smart. I mean, it's amazing some of the games that you can play with a horse. I'm talking about if, like, you get on a horse uh, the very first time, that horse will try uh, your knowledge and, and your skill of riding. And if you don't know what you're doing, a horse, I've seen it outsmart many a person. One of my friends, one time we were in uh, kind of, we were sharing the expenses on these horses and we were moving our horses from one pasture to the other. And anyway, I took one horse, he took the other one, and uh, we were riding them about 10 miles or so. And I mean, it was five hours, five hours after I got to the new pasture and this guy wasn't there and I was waiting and waiting. Finally, I got in the pickup and I started down the road to find this guy and he was just barely away from the other pasture. And I asked him what was wrong, and he says, oh, man, this horse is, he says, it's tired, something's wrong, it's just barely going, says it's something's wrong with this horse. And I said, there's nothing wrong with the horse, it's the rider. I said, this horse is just, it does not want to perform. I mean, it, a horse is like most people, they do as little as they have to do. You have to show them who's boss. And he said, no, this horse just won't move, something's wrong with it. And I said, watch this. And so I had him get in my pickup. And I got on the horse, and I mean, I got on that horse and took off at a dead run and probably ran that horse for a mile or two. We were to the pasture in 15 or 20 minutes, and this guy couldn't believe it. He still talks about that to this day, how this horse just made a fool out of him. Took him five hours to cover one mile. I mean, man, it's amazing. You could walk, you know, a lot faster than that. Horses are not stupid. Horses think, but they don't understand they don't have the ability to really reason things out. And, you know, an example of this is that I had a stallion and a mare, and uh, I tried to keep them separate because I didn't want just a whole slew of foals out of them. But anyway, this stallion was really motivated. 
Any of you that have had horses will know what I'm talking about. And I could not keep this stallion away from this mare. So I started building literally a fortress. I mean, I had some logs that were two foot in diameter, and I made this one corral, but it was real small, and I was expanding it and putting a, a fence around it, and I didn't get it done in time, and I had to leave to go to England for three weeks. And I knew that during this three weeks' time that there would be no way to keep that stallion away from this mare because I didn't have the corral completely finished. And so I was thinking about this, and I took this very scripture about, you know, a horse or a mule have no understanding. And I just sat down and looked at that horse. And, you know, the way this horse thought, it would go in the straightest, shortest line towards that mare. And I mean, if there was something in the way, it didn't matter. He would try and go through it, if at all possible. He just, he was motivated to get towards that mare, but he didn't really sit down and think things out. And so, you know what I did? I had originally planned to shut this stallion up in this corral, in this fortress that I had made. But I had one side, the side that faced away from the rest of my pasture and faced the the neighbor's pasture, I had this one side that I hadn't finished. It was just barbed wire over there that this horse could have gone straight through or jumped over. And if I would have left the mare in the open pasture where she could roam out of sight and down the hill, well, then when she was gone out of sight, this stallion would have jumped that fence, would have gone around the corral, and, of course, it, would, it wouldn't have deterred him more than just a few minutes. But you know what I finally figured out was that this stallion, if I put the mare in this corral. And the mare was the kind that she wouldn't even step over a, a, a strand of barbed wire. There's no way she would jump anything. She just was an easy keeper. I knew that she would stay in the corral. And so what I did, I put the stallion in the open pasture. And even though he had nothing but barbed wire around my entire property, he took the shortest route to that mare, which was through this corral, these huge logs I'd made. He could not get to her. And as long as he could see that mare, he didn't have the reasoning, the understanding to think that I could just go down the hill away, jump over this barbed wire fence and come around. See, he he wasn't able to process, to think, to understand. Now, he was thinking, but he, his thinking was limited. Hope you understand what I'm saying. Anyway, he was just motivated by his hormones is what it amounts to. He wasn't able to process and think. So, see, a horse thinks, but they just don't reason. And, you know, there is a scripture... In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 22, that says, But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. It says that if you commit adultery, do you know you lack understanding? It says a horse or a mule have no understanding. You know what this basically is saying? Is that people go out and commit adultery are like animals. They're like dumb animals. They aren't using their brain. They aren't thinking about the consequences. They aren't thinking about the damage that it's going to do to them emotionally or to the person that they're having a relationship with. They aren't thinking about the homes that it's going to destroy. They aren't thinking about the results that it's going to cost them in their work or in their ministry and on and on. They aren't thinking about the sexually transmitted diseases. Again, they just aren't thinking. They aren't utilizing their mind. They aren't focused on what's right. They're focused totally on the wrong thing. And the end result is they don't have any understanding. They're In that sense, when a person gets into that mode, they're no different than a horse or a mule who are just led by hormones. And sad to say, that is descriptive of a lot of people today that are letting their feelings and their emotions dominate them. And you don't have to talk about sin to uh, make this point either. I mean, people are letting their emotions dominate them when it comes to depression, to discouragement, 
I have people come up to me all the time and say that they're depressed and want me to pray for them, and I say, well, what's wrong? And they can't even name anything. They don't even have a reason. They just feel depressed. Boy, that just amazes me. People are letting their emotions, their feelings rule, dominate, and control them, and that is exactly the opposite of what Paul is talking about. He says, don't walk in the vanity of your mind. It causes your understanding to be darkened. You know, the Scripture talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, it says that we only see through a glass darkly, but then when the Lord comes, we receive a glorified body, we'll see face to face. Now we only know things in part, but then we'll know all things even as also we are known. So Paul is saying at our very best, we have a limited, darkened understanding. Now if you accept that, which I believe is a scriptural truth, then to allow it to become darkened any more by not using your mind properly, not focusing on the things of God, I mean, it's just unthinkable. If we already are not totally informed, I mean, if we already, because of the frailty of our flesh, are starting at a disadvantage, why in the world would anybody increase it by going out and doing some of the dumb things that we do? I mean, this is amazing. Notice that it doesn't just happen all at one time. I think that this is a progressive type of thing. I've talked to a lot of people that have got into, I mean, some very bad sin, very, you know, ungodliness and things that you just wonder how in the world can a person do that. And without exception, it happened over a period of time. Matter of fact, Jesus, speaking to his disciples one time, says this people's heart is waxed gross. And that word waxed there means that it's a progression. It did not happen automatically. It doesn't come on you like a seizure it's something that happens gradually over a period of time. Matter of fact, if most people who have gotten into some type of uh, you know, extreme immorality or have gone to some extreme, I mean just some weird perversion, if those kind of thoughts and things would have just come at them all at once, most people would have rejected that. But instead, it comes on them very gradually. They take step by step by step away. People just could not indulge in some of the things that they're doing if it was to come on them all at once, but it's a gradual progression of things. And it starts by not using your mind, just being amused, being entertained with things, not being focused. Then the next thing is that you begin to lose your understanding. You still think you could probably answer a question, but you aren't thinking properly. You aren't using the deep thought. You're just surface level. You're letting your hormones, your emotions rule and dominate you instead of controlling them. We just aren't utilizing what God's given us, and it darkens our understanding. The next thing it says, that we become alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. Boy, this word alienated is a strong word. You know, when you talk about somebody who is a non-resident of a country, you call them an alien. Or if you talk about, you know, an extraterrestrial being, you know, science fiction, they talk about their aliens. They're people that just, I mean, are totally out in space. They're people that are outside of the, you know, the confines of that country or of that world or whatever. I mean, this just totally separates us from the power of God. We get alienated through the ignorance that is in us. Notice it says that this alienation comes because of the ignorance in us. It's not God that separates himself from us. Well, that's important. You know, there are some people that you, some of the things I'm saying may really be hitting you, and you may be saying, boy, I'm guilty of all of these kind of things. And then you could read this 18th verse and say, well, boy, God's going to alienate himself from me. No, it's not God separating himself from you. 
It's you that when you allow your mind to begin to start just not functioning, when you allow it to vegetate, when you aren't focused and seeking the things of the Lord, when you aren't using your deep thought, it's you that alienates yourself from God. It's just like Micah chapter, or excuse me, Jonah chapter 2 verse 8 says, this is Jonah after he repented. Matter of fact, he was still in the belly of the whale when he was quoting this. He was praying to the Lord and he said, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. And boy, he should know. He didn't say that it was God that had done all of these things to him. He did it to himself. God had a perfect plan for Jonah. There would have been great reward, great blessing, great joy, great peace if he would have just cooperated. But he chose to go his own way, and he forsook his own mercy. He's the one that did these things to himself. It's just amazing to me, the people that come, and you know, their whole life is in shambles. They have made a wreck of their life. And then they come to me and say something like, why did God allow this? Man, God didn't do it. It's not God doing these things to us. We are the ones that are destroying ourselves. Now, we've got help from the devil. I mean, Satan will take advantage of every opportunity you give him. But ultimately, you can't even blame the devil for a lot of the stuff that's happening in our lives. I mean, he may be the one firing the shots, but we're giving him all the ammunition. We're supplying him with everything that he's using against us. This says that we are alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in us because of the blindness of their heart. You know, this word blindness here, it's the exact same word that's used to describe hardness in a number of instances. As a matter of fact, one of the translations, let me look it up here, it's W.E. Vine, uh, his comments about this Greek word that was used for blindness here, he described it as a covering with a callus, a hardening. And so when he's talking here about, uh, you know, having the blindness of their heart alienate us from the life of God, he's talking about the hardness of your heart. I've got a three-tape series on that, some things that the Lord taught me about hardness of heart, what it is, what causes it, and what cures it. It's really one of the most foundational things that the Lord ever taught me. If you hadn't got that, you need to get those tapes. They would be a real blessing to you. But I tell you, once your heart begins to become hardened, there's a lot of scriptures on this, but one of them talks about the ostrich. And it says that an ostrich, you know, hides its head in the sand and thinks that its eggs are protected. And it says it's just it does these kind of things because it is deprived of wisdom. God hath deprived the ostrich of wisdom and understanding. And so when, when we begin to start getting void of understanding, when our heart becomes hardened, then we start acting like an ostrich. You stick your head in a hole and think that because you can't see anybody else, they can't see you. You know, that's amazing. i got a cat that sometimes it'll play games with you, and it'll go hide. And if its head is around the corner so that it can't see you, it thinks it's hidden, but its tail's sticking right out there in the open. You know, that's not very much understanding. But that's the way that people get when they quit using their brain, when they quit focusing on the things of God, when they just start letting it be, you know, amused and taken care of. Your understanding is darkened. You become alienated. Your heart becomes hardened or blinded to the truth. You just can't see and understand spiritual truth. You know, things that are so evident and clear to a person who is really seeking the Lord and in the Word of God are, I mean, they are a mystery to a person that doesn't live that kind of a lifestyle. Paul said it this way over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He said that the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. They are hidden from him. They're foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. 
You know, there are some people that just literally cannot grab hold of spiritual truth because they are blinded. Their understanding has been darkened. They're darkened. They're alienated from all of this wisdom. And yet when you get in the Word of God, God's Word just changes that. I mean, your whole perspective changes. Things that at one time were so, um, you know, foreign to you, you just didn't understand it, it changes. You know, one area of this is in the area of finances. In finances, people just think, well, man, if I don't have enough right now, I certainly can't give anything away. That's the way that the natural mind thinks. But when you get into the Word of God and begin to perceive and see the wisdom of God, you'll see that when you are behind financially, that's when you need to start giving. That's when you need to sow. And, I mean, that just sounds foreign. That's alienate. That's People are alienated from that. See, they're walking in the vanity of their mind. They think this is crazy. If I got a $100 bill and I've only got $90, there's no way I can give any away. I still need 10 Well, the spiritual way, the scriptural way to look at it is that what you got won't meet the need anyway. What you ought to do is in faith sow and get God involved in your prosperity. And the scripture promises you give, it's given back unto you. And it makes very good sense. I mean, it's logical. That's the way that I live, and God has met my needs. But see, a person that's not thinking straight, Satan blinds them to all of this, and man, they just make the situation worse, walking in the vanity of their mind. In verse 19, he says, "...who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness." You know, this scripture says that they go beyond feeling. There's a couple of different ways of looking at this. Some people have interpreted this just to say that, man, they have become so numb, so callous, so hardened, blinded to the things of God that they now aren't responsive to any of the conviction that God has given them. I've read other things where people interpreted this as saying that, man, they have gone beyond normal emotions, which would be what he's talking about. They've gone beyond just the normal realm of feeling, and they have indulged themselves totally in the absurd, in the perverse You can also see this, that, you know, when people start into some type of a sexual sin, there are some people that start by just looking at something pornographic, and they get a little buzz off of that. But after a while, that doesn't become satisfying, and then they have to go to harder stuff and hardcore pornography, and then they have to actually go seeing the videos of it or something. Eventually, they'll have to participate in it, and then they can't just be involved in the illicit sex. It has to be perversion and on and on. I believe that's what leads people into homosexuality they've already explored they've already you know exhausted the normal use that god gave us of people and they just it the more perverse it is the more wild it is they just crave that and you can see this in people a sin is just like a drug addiction that at one time a certain level of dope may give a person a high but after a while it gets to where their body adjusts and it doesn't work and they've got to get a stronger and stronger and stronger dose it can never be satisfied So this could be what it's talking about, is that they have just gone beyond what's normal and they begin to start getting into the perverse and it can never be satisfied. It's just a lust that consumes them. It says they have given themselves over unto lasciviousness. Notice the terminology here. This does not just happen automatically. You have to give yourself over to this. And boy, this is different than the way a lot of people look at this. A lot of people see themselves as innocent and just literally having been taken captive by the devil, that Satan came and overpowered them, and there was nothing within their control that they could do to stop this. That is not the perspective that the Word of God gives towards sin, failure, 
defeat, all these kind of things. You have to give yourself over to that. You really do. Now, again, it's not just a one-time thing. It's a progression. But, you know, a person who Satan is just destroying their life, and I mean there is constant failure. I'm not talking about problems. All of us have problems at times, but they're temporary, and you work through them, and you overcome them. But I'm talking about somebody who their whole life is characterized by defeat and failure in any area. I can guarantee you it didn't just come upon them. They have given themselves over to it. It may not have been intentional. You know, a person may not have intentionally sat down and says, I want to be depressed. I want to be defeated. I want to be a failure. I don't ever want to succeed. I don't think people would do that. But you know what? People start making decisions that lead to that. They actually chose the end result. They may not have done it intentionally, but they start encouraging and allowing thoughts to come that are eventually going to conceive and bring forth this failure in their life. Over in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, the scripture there talks about that sin has to be conceived. It says lust, when it conceives, brings forth sin. And you know that word conceived is the exact word that we use for having children. Children don't just happen. The stork doesn't bring children. You don't just order them. They don't just come. You have to conceive a child. You have to carry it. And there's a lot of things that can happen in between conception and the actual birth process. There's a lot of women who lose their baby because they miscarry. And it's the same thing with sin. Sin does not just happen. You know, a person may just be going down the street, minding their own business, and all of a sudden they see somebody, lust just rises up on the inside, and before they know it, they have succumbed to that uh, temptation. They may go out and commit adultery, and from their perspective, they may say, I don't know how it happened. It just happened. It just came upon me. But I can guarantee you, if you could go home with that person and talk to them, it didn't just happen right then. That had to be conceived. There was a process that started a long time before, sometimes back when they're a child. They begin to entertain thoughts. They begin to think things that they uh, shouldn't have been thinking. They begin to watch things. They expose themselves to things. There were seeds sown for that long time before. And then the emotion that they had on that day may have been overpowering, and it may have, it may have looked like it just came on them, but it never happens that way. It always has to be conceived. You know, I can say this. I know that any person is capable of doing anything if they were to totally give themselves over to the flesh. Now, I've never gone out and committed adultery. I've never done any of those kind of things. I've lived a super separated life according to most people's standards. But you know what? I, I know that I'm capable of doing anything if I was to let myself go. But I can say this, that at this moment, because I'm seeking the Lord and because I'm sensitive to the Lord and because I love God and I'm meditating in his word and I'm focused on what God's told me to do, etc. Did you know at this moment, I really could not, could not, I don't believe it's humanly possible for me to go live in adultery. Now, that's because of the way I am right now and because of what I'm saying right here, that you have to give yourself over to this. It doesn't just come upon you. At the state I'm in right now, I literally could not I can't conceive it. I can't even relate to it. It just could not happen. But you know what? If I started allowing thoughts in, if I started, first of all, just getting depressed and discouraged under guilt and condemnation, if I allowed myself to be unplugged from my relationship with the Lord, 
if I quit seeking him, quit doing the things that I was supposed to do, if I allowed myself to start violating my conscience and I severed my conscience with a hot iron because I just totally, time after time, ignored it. If I did those things over a period of time, and I don't know what period of time it would be. I would imagine it would take a minimum of six months, a year, who knows. But over a period of time, I believe I could deaden myself and I could hinder the conviction and the leading of the Holy Spirit to the point that I'd become capable of doing anything. I believe that that's what the Scripture teaches, that your flesh doesn't improve. You just get to where you become better and better at denying your flesh and letting the Spirit man dominate. So my flesh is capable of doing anything, but it just can't happen immediately. It has to be a progression. You have to give yourself over unto these things. Boy, there's so much in these passages of Scripture. I'm re- Believe it or not, I am really running through these things quickly. You need to minister, meditate on this until you get some of the truths out of here that are here. This is a powerful truth. You know, the Christian life, you can actually have security, confidence, and know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you know, what you are capable of and incapable of, if you will just be sensitive, if you will seek the Lord, if you will set your heart correctly on the things of the Lord, you can have confidence and know that you cannot go out and turn your back on the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that you are totally incapable of it, but it means that you are going to have to take steps away from the Lord. As long as you just keep yourself red hot on fire seeking God, you can rest assured that, praise God, this sin just cannot come upon you. It has to be conceived. You have to give yourself over unto this. And, you know, all of this starts right back up in the 17th verse, walking in the vanity of your mind, not utilizing your mind properly, not being focused, you know, in transient in the thoughts that you have. And then the next step is you begin to lose your understanding, your spiritual perception, your deep thought. You aren't meditating on the things of God. You aren't setting your heart on it. That darkens this understanding. It alienates you from the life of God. And then it blinds or hardens your heart. And once that happens, boy, you begin to start forgetting things. You don't have spiritual perception anymore. You're separated from the things of God. You go beyond just normal feelings, and you start being excessive, start being wild, perverse in the extreme on the things that you do. And you start giving yourself over to the devil. And once that is started, I guarantee you that is a slippery downhill slope that you don't want to be on. You know how to stop all of this? Go right back to the 17th verse. Start focusing on the things of God. I mean focus. Make it priority. Keep your mind stayed upon God all of the time. Begin to start being still and use your mind. Sit down and ponder the path of your feet. Think about where you're going, what God has for you. Start using your brain, using it. Take the Word of God and renew your thoughts. Meditate on it. Get a new perspective on things. Don't be plugged into the world. Boy, this is so simple. I'll tell you, these little verses right here, this stuff is so simple that when I say it, I know some people think, well, everybody ought to know this. Well, they ought to, but the truth is they don't, and people are not living this way. And I can guarantee you that if you're experiencing major problems, in your life, you have violated some of these principles that we've been talking about here. It just can't happen any other way. I mean, Satan does not have access to every single person. Scripture says over in First Peter chapter 5, it says, you know, that the devil, your adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
Satan cannot just devour anybody. Satan doesn't have access to every single person. If he did, I guarantee you, Satan gets a morbid delight out of destroying people's lives. Satan, I mean, gets pleasure out of destruction. He would not leave anybody standing. If it was up to the devil, he'd have everybody into perverseness. He'd have everybody into total sin and total anger and total rebellion and on and on. You can just rest assured that Satan, one thing you can say about him, that he is consistent. He is consistently bad. He would never treat anybody good. There'd be nobody with any joy in their life. Nobody would prosper if it was totally up to the devil. That's what Satan desires to do, but he can't do it. You have to go through this progression. You have to give yourself over to him. Again, it's not obvious. I'm not saying that people are doing this intentionally, but whether it's intentional or through ignorance or whatever... People are yielding unto Satan. And if we would just do these things listed right here, we could stop the intervention of Satan. I just recently taught a series entitled what I call Effortless Change. And in that, I'm talking about that all you've got to do to change, all you've got to do to begin to start walking in the abundance that God has for you is just make a commitment to get into the Word day and night and stay in the Word of God and let the Word stay in you. Dominate and control your actions, your emotions, your thoughts according to the Word of God. And you know, if you'll do that, that's really the only effort you have to put into it. It takes effort to deny yourself when everybody else is out here partying and doing all of the vain, vanity things that are non-productive. You may have to deny some of those things, and you may have to just stay shut up with the Lord and seek the Lord. And, and you know, it's not like it's bad being in the presence of God Almighty. He's wonderful to be with. I guarantee you, he'll compensate you tremendously. He, he's better to be with than anybody else you could be with. But if you would do those things, you would find out that you would just effortlessly, automatically begin to start changing. On the other hand, if you don't do those things, you're going to find out that all of these things listed right here will begin to happen, and the end results will be death. Boy, this is powerful stuff. In verse 20, Paul goes on to say, But you have not so learned Christ. And Paul's the one who ought to know, because Paul's the one who taught him about Christ. Paul brought the gospel to these Ephesians. He's the one that preached to them and saw them converted, and he knew what he taught them. Man, he taught them a devotion to God. Not out of a legalistic standpoint in the sense where you've got to do this or God won't bless you. God's love for us is unconditional, and it's not based on our actions. It's not according to our holiness. But our love for God is based on our actions. I guarantee you, you go out and deny the leadership of the Holy Ghost and indulge yourself in carnal activities. It's going to blind you. It's going to darken your understanding, alienate you, on and on. It will affect your zeal and passion for God. God will still love you, but you won't love God the same. And Paul knows because he's the one that taught them, and he taught them these things. He says, you are not following the instruction that you were given when you were led to the Lord. He said, some of these things that you're doing, if you're walking like a lost man in the vanity of your mind, that's not the way that I taught you. And then in verse 21, he says, if so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Christ. You know, here's... Uh, Another way of saying this, a way of paraphrasing it, this word, so if so be, this phrase, is what's called a conditional clause. And it's not expressing doubt about, did you hear it this way? Because, see, again, Paul is the one that taught him. He knew what they were saying. Here's another way of saying it. You could say it this way. You did hear Jesus, didn't you? 
You were taught by him, weren't you? The truth is in Jesus, and if that be so, you know there's no room for the conduct and the behavior of the world in the Christian life. In other words, it's kind of a sarcastic statement. He says, didn't you hear? He says, haven't you heard him and been taught by him, and haven't you heard what the truth is in Christ? That's the point that he's getting across in this 21st verse. In the 22nd verse, he says that you put off. Here's what these truths were. This is what was taught them. This is the way that they're supposed to operate. It says that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Did you know that every other time in the New Testament where it talks about the old man, it talks about him in the past tense. It talks about putting off the old man as having been something that has already occurred. Uh, The classic example of this, I've already got footnotes written on this, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 6, actually beginning in verse 2 on through verse 6, I wrote quite a bit about that, that you are already dead unto sin. And I encourage you to go back and look at those footnotes, uh, especially footnote number 8 at Romans 6, 6. And it'll talk about how that the old man is already gone. Also, Second Corinthians five 17, I've got footnotes I wrote about it there, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. The point I'm making is that In every other instance, talking about the old man, it's very clear that this old man is already been dealt with. He's already crucified. He's already dead. He's already gone. He is non-existent. But in this verse, it says that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Some people read that as something that has yet to happen. In other words, that Paul is like instructing them to take this old man and to deny him. If you interpret it that way, see, it would be contrary to everything else that's being said in Scripture about the old man. I believe that here's the way that Paul's saying it. In other words, in verse 21, he was saying, but this isn't the way you learn Christ. He says, here's what I taught you in Christ that you put off. And then he says, concerning the former conversation. Now, see, the word conversation here is talking about a lifestyle, Manner of life. It's not just talking about words that you say, but in the Bible, conversation is referring to your actions, to your lifestyle, the way you act. And so he's saying, put off concerning the former conversation, the old man. He didn't just say put off the old man, but he's talking about concerning the way you act. In other words, the old man, when you got born again, has already been dealt with through the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this old man left behind a body or actions. He left behind an unrenewed mind. He left behind emotions that had been, I mean, just totally trampled upon and that are out of control, etc. And you have to deal with the things concerning that former conversation, the former way of life, the former lifestyle. The old man himself is gone. You are not schizophrenic. You don't have a brand new part of you and then this old corrupt nature that is just a part of the devil. You aren't part of God and part of the devil at the same time. You have been born again, and you now have a new spirit living on the inside of you, but you still have some of the same attitudes, some of the same thinking, some of the same emotions, the wrong desires, etc., that were left over from the old man. I think in Romans chapter 6, I called it the residual old man. You know, it's just the effects, just like when a person dies physically. The scripture shows us in James 2.26 that when you die, your spirit goes to be with the Lord immediately. But you leave behind that body. And for a period of time, that body continues to look the way that it did. It takes a long time for it to decay and turn to, you know, dirt. Until that time, you could actually look at a person. You could recognize them. You could see their features. 
and stuff like that, and yet the person isn't there. That's just the residual part of them. It's just their body that was left behind. Well, it was the same. You have died to that old man. That old man is gone, and it's replaced by a new born-again man. Your real drive in your spirit is to serve God, but that old man left behind wrong thoughts, wrong attitudes, wrong things that if you allow them to will still influence you and dominate and control you. And this is what he's talking about right here. He says, concerning the former conversation, the former way of acting that you put off the old man. The old man himself is gone, but put off the things that he left behind. Quit wearing his clothes. Quit acting like him. Get rid of those attitudes. Renew yourself because it's corrupt according to the deceitful lust. In verse 23, it says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You know, this word spirit right here, is important. Uh, most of the time when this word spirit, it's actually the Greek word pneuma, is used, this is referring to like the Holy Spirit. This is used many times in Scripture referring to that. It's referring to our born-again spirit. It's referring to a part of us, a person like the Holy Spirit or the born-again part of you, spirit, soul, and body, etc. But the word pneuma also can mean a mental disposition is what Strong says. It means mental disposition. Matter of fact, the NIV translates this verse. It says, be made new in the attitude of your mind. So the point that I'm getting across is that in this verse, the word spirit here is not talking about a part of you, like your born-again spirit, or some people would even interpret it as your old spirit, your old man. It's not talking about a part of you. It's talking about be renewed in your attitudes, in your outlooks, in your perspectives. Here are some synonyms for the word spirit when you're using it in the sense that we're talking about a mental disposition. It means uh, outlook, feeling, sentiment, disposition. That's according to the New American Heritage Dictionary. And so when you're talking here about be renewed in the spirit of your mind, he's not talking about just putting facts in your head. I think this is where a lot of people have missed it. You know, they learn things. Sometimes even as children, they're able to quote scriptures. But again, they don't focus on it. They don't get the deep thought. They don't meditate on it until it literally begins to start changing their attitudes, their outlook, their philosophy. You know, examples of this are like, for instance, there's some people that can quote you scriptures about financial prosperity. I mean, it's just like, you know, a parrot. You can train them to say certain things. They might know scriptures that says, I wish above all things that you prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. Jesus became poor so that we through his poverty might be made rich. You can put those facts in them, but if they don't really focus on it, meditate on it until the deep thought, until it gets down deep on the inside of them, and they begin to start understanding and renewing their entire outlook, those people can have the facts and yet still have an attitude of poverty. I see some people who are going around saying, my God supplies all of my needs, but the way they think, they've been taught all of their life to just think poor. I remember this one uh, couple that, I mean, they melted the soap down when it got you know down to where it was just little tiny pieces left. They saved those pieces and they melted the soap down because they came through the Depression and they just didn't waste anything. Now, I'm not saying that that's totally bad to be frugal and stuff, but it was done by them out of fear. It wasn't done as just an economical step or, or them being a good steward. They were doing it out of fear that someday there was going to be another crash 
that someday they would be destitute again. They lived in a constant type of fear, and that's just one way. They melted these things down and made new bars of soap. They just scrimped and saved constantly. Now, again, that could be done in a proper way, but with many people, that would be an attitude, see, that would be persisting. And you could be standing there saying, well, my God supplies all my needs, but then you go out and you won't get you a decent pair of shoes. Instead, you get whatever's on sale. You get the wrong size. Well, you know, it's not important. You wind up damaging your feet. You won't take care of yourself because you're constantly thinking, I've got to get the cheapest. I can't spare any money on this. And on and on. That's a poverty attitude. And you know what? Even though you may have some facts up there that God's going to supply your needs, you have the attitude, the outlook, the philosophy of poverty. And as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That's not talking about just individual thoughts, but it's talking about this spirit of your mind, your attitude, your outlook. What is the dominant outlook that you've got? Do you see yourself poor? Do you see yourself a second-class citizen? Do you still make jokes and criticisms about those people that are wealthy and, like, you know, you always distance yourself and you never see yourself able to prosper? You never see yourself able to wear a brand-new dress, a brand-new suit, never have the best? And again, I'm not talking about extravagance. I'm, You know, if I had millions and millions of dollars, I wouldn't be out buying these expensive cars and things. They wouldn't get up my hill. Amen. i got to have a four-wheel drive to get up my hill. It just wouldn't benefit me. I'm not talking about extravagance, but I'm saying that you ought to get what you need. And you ought to, instead of buying the cheapest things, sometimes I've seen people buy things that wear out, cause them so much time and effort. My time is worth a lot. I guarantee you, I'll just go get something that's going to work and that I know will stay working, and that's actually, in the long run, it's a better value. It's actually being a better steward. But you know what? Some people have such a poverty attitude that they can't think long term. It's just moment to moment. That's a poverty attitude. That's not being renewed in the spirit of your mind. And so Paul here, going back to the context, once again, he's talking about that you need, he's talking about the mind. Same thing he started with in the 17th verse about the vanity of your mind. And he's going back and talking about not just individual thoughts, but the spirit of this mind. Your attitude, your outlook, your perspectives on things. You need to meditate on the Word of God until you begin to start thinking like God in an abundance. You need to meditate on it until you start seeing yourself as a giver instead of a receiver not a taker. Boy, so many people have this attitude. You know, there's people that uh, come to services, and, man, they are constantly, they're, they're the ones that always need prayer. They think about, what can I get? How is this going to benefit me? What do I need this time? Instead of seeing themselves as a person that, I'm going to go here and see if there's somebody I can bless. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. You know, that's a philosophy. It's an outlook. And it doesn't matter how many times a person hears that they've been blessed by the Lord until they deal with that and renew this spirit of their mind and see themselves no longer as the taker but the giver. Now, I'm not talking about that you don't receive when you need it and that you become self-sufficient and arrogant and thinking nobody can help me. All of us need help at times. But I'm saying you ought to get to a place to where, praise God, God, I want to be a giver instead of a taker. I want to be the one who's blessing and giving to others instead of the one who is being given to The only reason I really want to receive is just so that I can be a greater giver, a bigger giver. You begin to get that kind of attitude. See, what you're doing is renewing the spirit of your mind. Not just thoughts, not just individual facts, but you're dealing with entire outlooks and perspectives. Boy, that's powerful. 
Again, I encourage you to get those two three-tape albums on Christian philosophy. That's what all of this is built on, is this 23rd verse. In verse 24, it says, And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. You know, the Greek word used here for put on, here's what it means according to Thayer's lexicon. It says to sink into clothing, put on, clothe oneself. Well, now, I think that's neat. You know what that is? That's a word picture. He's talking about here in the same way that a person wears clothes to cover up your nakedness, to cover up your flesh. And people, when they see you, they don't see your nakedness. Instead, they see your clothes. They compliment you on your clothes. The clothes are the dominant thing. It covers you. In the same way, did you know that we ought to take our new man and all of the attributes of the new man, the holiness, the self-control, the love, the joy, the peace, all of these kind of things, we ought to clothe ourselves in that. It's a word picture, just like you put on a coat or a, or a robe or something and cover yourself. You ought to cover yourself. You ought to cover this flesh, your old personality, your old nature, your old characteristics. You ought to cover it with God's Word. I mean, just literally saturate yourself so that when people see you, instead of seeing their irritableness and the griping and the complaining, instead they see the nature of God. Instead of hearing you talk about how bad you got things, man, they ought to hear nothing but words that edify and minister help unto other people. He goes on and says that right here in these next few verses in this chapter. He starts contrasting things. He says, instead of lying, speak truth with your neighbor. Instead of stealing, start being one that starts clothing yourself with this attitude that you want to labor and work hard so that you can have an abundance to give to other people. Man, we need to counteract our old tendencies, this old carnal attitudes that we have and we need to clothe ourselves and put on all of these righteous attributes that are in our new man now notice in verse 24 he's talking about and that you put on the new man i don't believe that anybody would interpret this as saying that this is talking about that you have to go get born again no he's already been talking to christians throughout this whole book of ephesians he's talking about that this new man already exists you just need to put him on you need to release it. You need to take these attributes and get them out of your spirit and into your soul and into your body and into your physical actions. So in the 24th verse, in the same way as this new man already exists, he's talking about just letting those attributes and characteristics dominate and control you. It's the exact same thing that's up in the 22nd verse. That old man is already gone, but he's talking about taking those attributes, those characteristics that were true of the old man, and now rejecting them, letting them go, taking them out, and instead clothing yourself with the new man. See, in the same way as the new man's not coming, he's already there, you just need to put him on. Well, the old man in the 22nd verse is already gone. You just need to put him off. You need to take those clothes off that were characteristic of that old man. It says down here, to put on the new man, which after God, the terminology here, after God, the NIV translates this as being created to be like God. So this is what he's talking about. He says, put on the new man, which is just like God. It looks like God. It's his nature. It's his attributes. I've already dealt with this quite a bit in other places, but you know, the Scripture talks about that as He is, so are we in this world, First John four, seventeen, And your new man is identical to the Lord Jesus. And that's what he's stressing here. And notice it says it's created in righteousness and true holiness. 
you aren't in the process of growing into righteousness and holiness. Now, that may be true externally as far as you putting on this new man, as far as other people, their ability to see it. You're growing in your ability to release this righteousness and true holiness. But the truth is that in your spirit, you aren't getting more and more righteous. You were created in righteousness and true holiness. And you're in the process of renewing your mind and allowing more and more of that to dominate and control your entire being. But in your spirit, you're already complete. You were created that way. Boy, that is a powerful truth. I tell you, this is something that a lot of people don't have a concept of. Over in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, the scripture there says that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Human nature tends to think in carnal, external terms. And most people, they look in the mirror. And if they see themselves acting improperly or thinking improperly, then they think that that's who they really are and that's how they really are. But no, that's just an outward manifestation. The truth is that in your spirit, you are already created in righteousness and true holiness. And you've got to get that mentality. You've got to be able to separate between your physical actions, your mental thoughts, and who you are in the spirit. Because who you are in the spirit is already a done deal. It's an accomplished fact. And see, God looks at you in the spirit. John 4.24 says, God is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God deals with you based on who you are in the spirit. And so if you aren't thinking that way, the scripture says, how can two walk together except they be agreed? If you're looking on the external and seeing all of your faults and thinking that that's the way that God relates to you based on how well you're acting and how well you're doing, well, then you aren't going to let God's pleasure You aren't going to experience God's pleasure. You won't let him love you like that because you'll think, I'm just not worthy of it. Well, you aren't worthy of it in the physical, natural, soulish realm, but in the spirit, see, where God lives and God looks at you and deals with you based on who you are in the spirit, you are worthy. God is righteous to love you. God is righteous to be pleased with you and to accept you. And see, that's the way that God looks at you. God's looking at something differently than you are. And if you don't see that, then you are going to be hindered in your relationship with the Lord. You've got to get this attitude that you have been created in righteousness and true holiness. Man, there's so many scriptures talking about righteousness, but it's something that's already an accomplished fact. The book of Romans, of course, Romans chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, deal with this very strong, talking about our righteous position in the Lord. It's not something that we're in the process of walking into. It was created that way. Your spirit is already in right standing with God. There is nothing wrong with it. You know, the word justified, I interpret that in layman's terms of just saying that it means just as if I'd never sinned, justified. And that really is true in the spirit. There is no sin. There is no impurity. You're totally pure. You're totally whole. And you've got to begin to see yourself that way. I tell you, this truth transformed my life, totally transformed me. And it goes on to say that you were created in righteousness and true holiness, implying that there is a false holiness. You know what false holiness is? That's the actions that you do. That's what most of us consider to be holiness. In other words, there's a lot of people that think that because they wear their hair a certain way or they wear certain types of clothes or because they do or don't do certain things, that that's holiness. That's all external stuff. And that's really false holiness. Now, it has a purpose. When it comes to relating to people, people are going to judge you based on your external 
holiness, not on who you are in the spirit. When it comes to dealing with the devil, Satan is going to take advantage of you based on your actions. And so it is important to maintain that external, outward holiness. But you know, the truth is that you can never, never, never be truly holy, God's kind of holy, in just your actions. You know, it's ridiculous to think that because you wear a certain type of dress or, you, or you're bleached out and you put on powder instead of makeup or you pile your hair on your head or you wear gold or you don't wear gold or some of those things, that's, that's ludicrous to believe that that makes you accepted with God, that this is holiness. You know, it may benefit you in relationships to people and in your attitudes and dealings with the devil, but the truth is... That, man, anything we could ever do is so far short of what it takes to really be accepted in the sight of God that you can't relate to God based on external actions. You have to have a supernatural holiness. I mean, God's holiness, His purity, is infinitely greater than anything we could ever measure up to. And so it just has to be given unto us. And that's what happens. When you get born again, you are created in righteousness and true holiness. Your spirit is as holy, as pure, as righteous as Jesus is. Now, that's an awesome statement, but it's true. And I've already taught on this hundreds of times as we've gone through this New Testament study. Man, I'd refer you to a lot of scriptures. I've got a tape entitled, Who You Are in the Spirit. I've got a tape entitled, Identity in Christ, which is a third tape in a three-part series on emotions. Just a lot of teaching on this. But you need to get hold of this truth, that in your spirit you are righteous and truly holy. You have true holiness. You have God's holiness that was imparted unto you. And man, until you get a revelation of this and see yourself that way, I just can't understand how any person could ever really walk in the abundance of the Lord, as long as they're looking at themselves just on the external. As long as what you see in the mirror, if you think that's the real you, you're going to be just one depressed person. Because I guarantee you, regardless of how well we perform, it'll never be good enough. It'll never be good enough that you can feel good about yourself and secure just based on external actions. Now, there's probably some people listening to me who disagree with that and say, now, wait a minute, I am really doing well. Well, for a period of time, you can fool yourself and even fool a few people. But I promise you, every person, sooner or later, is going to fail in their actions. If nothing else, just wait until you get older. Wait until you begin to start sagging and get bald or, or get fat or get old and you just can't perform and no longer are you able to produce. No longer are you a productive member, but somebody's having to take care of you. If your self-esteem, if your net worth, if your goodness is based on your actions, you are going to come crashing to the ground. But you know what? If a person can begin to relate to God and feel good about themselves, not because of things that you do, but rather because of what God did for you, that you were just created righteous and truly holy. You have value and worth because of what God did in your life, not what you've done for him. You get that kind of attitude, and you begin to start thinking like that, and I guarantee you, you can go out with a shout. I don't care what your physical circumstances are like. I don't care what your physical body's like, how you feel. Your spirit, man, is righteous and truly holy. Boy, if you ever get a revelation of that, I tell you, that is life transforming. In verse 25, it says, wherefore, and the word wherefore means based on what had just previously been said. It's a conjunction, tying these things together. Here's the result of putting off the old man and putting on the new man, being renewed in the spirit of your mind. 
So here's the result. It says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. See, the old man lied. The new man does not lie. Boy, there's so many applications of this. There's so much that could be said on this. But there's a lot of people that when it comes to being led by the Lord, they want to know what is it that I'm supposed to do? Is it God's will for me to do this or to do that? Well, you can go to the Word of God and find out what God's instructions were. And the new man, your new born-again self, will always conform to what God's Word says about you. That's just really simple. I mean, like, for instance, in a business deal, there's a lot of people that are taught to lie about their competition, to misrepresent the facts, and it may not be. Some people may rationalize and say it's not a total lie, but in truth it is. I mean, you aren't presenting the whole truth. You know, over in Exodus chapter 20, it says, Thou shalt not bear false witness. It didn't just say, Thou shalt not lie. There's other scriptures that say that. But it says, You shall not bear false witness. You know, if you are presenting your product as being superior, and that's a false witness, it may not be a total lie. Maybe you're saying it's superior to one product, but you're implying or you're leaving that other person with the impression that it's superior to everything else. You may not have out and out lied, but you bore false witness. And you wonder, says, is this the way that God would want me to do? This is the way I've been trained to do. It's the way everybody else does. It, the competition is so strong, it's cutthroat type thing. I've got to do this. I wonder if it's all right. Would God want me to do that? The answer is right here. It says no. It says the old man lied. The new man doesn't lie. You speak the truth. You know, that's a really simple application. But it's amazing how many people don't make these applications into their everyday life. I mean, there's some people... But, you know, in the natural, when you were just talking to them, they would be nice to you and polite. But when it comes to business deal, it's dog eat dog. It's the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And, I mean, they lean on you. They say things. And if you were to confront them, say, well, I didn't mean anything personal. And, yeah, it was terribly rude. It's a, there's some people that just think that that's the way the business world is. Well, that's maybe the way the lost business world is. But you could use godly principles. See, this is saying that you don't do those kind of things anymore. Put off the old man, which was a liar, and now put on the new man, which speaks truth with his neighbor. And here's the reason for it. It says, for we are members one of another. You know, if you really got this concept that uh, we are all, every person who is born again is members one of another, and that if that person is suffering, you ultimately are going to suffer. The kingdom of God that you're a vital part of is ultimately going to suffer if every member is not pulling its weight. And if you saw that, then you would recognize that when I lie to another person and deceive them, I'm hurting myself. I'm not just hurting them. I'm hurting me. I'm taking away something from that person. I'm making them less than what they could be, and ultimately that's going to wind up hurting me. You know, we just are not disconnected. We all are united. In the 26th verse, now here, the 26th and 27th verse, in my opinion, are probably two of the most misinterpreted, misapplied scriptures in all of the Bible. I mean, these scriptures have been used, I believe, to say things exactly opposite what they're really saying. It says in verse 26, Be ye angry, and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. You know, the typical way of interpreting these scriptures People say that God knows that we're just human, that we're going to make mistakes. It's impossible for us not to get angry. So God is just saying that it, when you get angry, make sure you get it confessed 
by the time the sun goes down every night. Don't let it go on and on and on. In other words, you're going to make a mistake. God makes allowances for that, but he does tell you to at least get over it within 24 hours. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. I tell you, to me, that is a terrible misinterpretation and application of this scripture. Now, you could teach something from that. I've heard people at marriage seminars, etc., say that you ought to just make a commitment to not let the sun go down on your wrath. Get it, get everything resolved before the day's out. And you can make beneficial points out of that, and it's always good to resolve conflict. The sooner the better. But this scripture is not saying that God approves of anger during the daylight hours and he disapproves of it at night. This is not saying that God gives you a 12-hour grace period and you can be angry as long as you don't let it go over 12 hours. It's not sin. That is not what he's saying. I believe what this is talking about is that there is a godly type of anger that is not sin. Be ye angry and sin not. He's commanding us to have a godly, righteous type of anger. You know, God created the capacity for anger. Jesus got angry. It said he got so angry that he turned over the tables of the money changers and made a cat of nine tails and whipped them and drove them out. And it says that he was angry. Matter of fact, the scripture talks about that the beginning of wisdom is to hate evil. Over in the book of Proverbs, in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, it says, Let your love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Abhor is a strong word that would relate to wrath and anger. We are commanded to have anger. Anger in itself is not wrong. It's just wrong when it's directed at people and when it's self-serving. And so most of us only think about anger that's directed at people and self-serving. But actually, anger is just the set of God's nature against sin, against what's evil. And God hates that which is evil. God hates certain things, and we are commanded to hate certain things. And I believe that this is what he's talking about. There is a righteous type of anger, an anger that is not self-serving and it's not directed at people, but an anger that is against the devil. In other words, if somebody does something to you, the Scripture says if they steal from you, turn the other cheek. If they smite you on the one cheek, turn the other. If they steal, give them your coat and cloak also, etc. In other words, you're supposed to forgive the individual. You are not supposed to harbor hatred towards people. But you know what? You should hate their evil deeds. You should hate people that steal. You should hate people, not people, but you should hate the action of smiting somebody and doing injustice to people. We need to get to where we hate evil, but don't hate the person who's committing the evil. We forgive them and operate in mercy towards people, but you need to hate the devil. You need to hate everything that's of the devil. You need to get to where you hate sickness, where you hate poverty, where you hate sin. Not the people that do those things. You need to get to where you hate homosexuality. Not homosexuals, but homosexuality. You need to get to where you hate anything that is contrary to the Word of God. Not the people that do those things. And see, this is what he's talking about. There is a righteous type of anger that is not sin. And then when it says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath... That's not saying, you know, make sure that you get this resolved before the sun goes down. But what it's talking about is don't ever, ever let that righteous type of anger go to sleep. Don't ever let it rest. Don't ever give it a reprieve. Man, keep yourself stirred up. Keep yourself passionate for the things of God and against the things that come against him. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about, you know, you have to keep yourself stirred up. Over in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 12 
The scripture there talks about the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. And you know what? You've got to get violent to receive things from God. I heard a person say that you've got to be desperate, not in a bad sense of the word, but in a good sense of the word. You've got to get to a point to where, man, you aren't passive, but you're passionate about the things of God. And I mean you are strong and unrelenting. You need that kind of an attitude. I tell you, we have so many passive people today who are just sitting back and waiting on God to do something and just whining and wailing and travailing and griping, but they aren't exerting any faith, any authority. This scripture is talking against that. It's talking about when it comes to putting off the old man and putting on the new, you're going to have to be aggressive about this. You're going to have to be violent with it, passionate about it. Man, you need to quit lying and you need to start giving to other people. And you need to get angry in these things and say, I will not lie anymore. I am not going to call it exaggeration. I'll call it what it is. Amen. I am not going to do this because it's hurting me as well as hurting other people. You need to have an anger against all of these works of the flesh. He goes on and mentions down here stealing. He talks about corrupt communication that comes out of your mouth, grieving the Holy Spirit. You need to get angry about things like that. And you need to get angry when you give in to things like that and not hate yourself, but hate the ungodliness. Get to where you're no longer embracing it, passing, passive about it. You know, when you start joking about ungodly things, that's a detrimental deal because it takes away this edge, the hatred for it. You make it something that is, is funny, tolerable. Boy, there's certain things that aren't funny. They shouldn't be joked about. You need to have a hatred for the things of the devil and never let that go to bed. Never let it rest. Keep it stirred up, white hot, against the things of the devil. The next verse says, neither give place to the devil. It's implying that if you are passive, if you aren't using a righteous, godly type of anger, then you are giving place to the devil. And again, see, this relates to things that we've already said, where you have to give yourself over to the devil. The devil goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He can't just devour everybody. You have to give place to him. And how do you do that? Well, right here in context, one of the ways that Satan has access, inroad into us, is that we get passive towards him. We get to where we no longer hate the things of the devil. You know, going all the way back to the 17th verse, where he talked about using your mind, you know, not in the vanity. That means inutility, transientness. You know, if you would get a mindset against certain things and not tolerate any passiveness towards it, it could really be a very positive thing in your life. I think I've made this point before, but I think that one of the ways that Satan has been able to corrupt the moral standards of our society is that he came in through things like television, and he, first of all, didn't just come against marriage as a whole. He didn't come against, you know, or for adultery. What he did, he had sitcoms where they started making fun of it. They started poking fun of it. They started putting people in situations where they were misunderstood and made jokes out of adultery, out of things like this, and got people to laughing at something that they never should have laughed at. They shouldn't have felt that those things were funny. I mean, we should have had an anger towards all types of immorality. But the devil comes in and gets you to joking about it. Gets, he comes in the back door and he just gradually, step by step, gets us to give ourselves over. And we watch shows like, I never saw this, but I've seen, um, I've seen it as I pass the dial on television. I've heard other people talk about it, but that show Three's Company, where you have one guy living with two girls. 
uh, total immorality, all kinds of stuff. And people laugh at that. Christians watch that. People watch this um, show. I forgot the name of it. But anyway, Archie Bunker, something or another, where people just glorify bigotry, anger, strife, yelling, screaming at each other. Again, it's another one of those shows I never saw, but I know a lot of Christians were really into that, and it was it was ungodly principles. I mean, there was a lot of ungodly things in there, and, and people use that as entertainment. You know what that does? That deadens you. You no longer abhor that which is evil. You no longer hate the ungodly things and see them destroying people. Beer commercials use this stuff all of the time. They don't show you the drunk laying in the gutter after he had puked his guts out, and he's sitting there destroyed. His family's gone. They don't show you the home wreck. They don't show you his poverty. They don't show you the anger and the grief that he's got. They don't show you the the real finished product of the brewer's art. Those of you that are old enough to remember, that was a phrase that they used for one of the beer commercials, the finished product of the brewer's art. And they always show you these beautiful pictures of horses running through the snow or of some beautiful scene or pristine mountain streams. And they show you these things that are pleasant. You know what they're doing? They're deadening this anger towards something that is destroying people. Now, again, it's not just booze in itself, but it's the abuse of it. And uh, they don't show you all of these kind of potential things. They deaden you towards that. And it's a step-by-step giving yourself over the things of the devil. Man, we need to get to where we don't uh, laugh at something that God doesn't laugh at. We need to get to where we don't indulge ourselves in thinking about things that are contrary to what God's Word says. You need to use your mind. You need to have a set, an, a mindset, an anger, a bent against things that come and destroy and that defeat people. And we don't need to make jokes about that. We don't need to use that as levity. Man, there's plenty to rejoice over and have fun over without doing something that's ungodly. And I believe that that's what all of these scriptures are talking about. In context, he's been talking about using our mind, setting it against the things of the devil, being focused on the things of God, keeping our understanding, our deep thought, I mean meditating on things, And he goes through all of this, putting off the old man, being renewed in the spirit of your mind, putting on the new man. He starts giving us some examples of what that means, not lying anymore, but instead speaking truth. And then he comes down and he puts this verse in about anger. And I just believe that he's saying that you need to be passionate about these things. Boy, there need to be some things that you are uncompromising about. There is a godly anger, a a righteous indignation, wrath against the things of the devil, and against ungodliness. And boy, you need to keep that attitude. You need to get to where you do not tolerate those things. Now again, you've got to separate between the people who commit these ungodly acts and the ungodly acts themselves. You love people who are ungodly, but you hate ungodliness. And that is not a contradiction of terms. That is, I mean, it's a perfect balance. Man, you hate the the ungodliness and what it's doing to people, but you love those people. You'll extend mercy towards them. You'll tell them about the goodness of God, but you hate the garment that's even stained by the flesh. You don't want anything to do with it. I tell you, we need to get those kind of attitudes. In verse 28 through the end of the chapter, he just starts enumerating on some things. I hadn't got time to really go into that on this tape, so on our next tape, I'll take up here in Ephesians 4, and verse 28.
We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.